0: Well, I so appreciate this opportunity. It's a great privilege for me, and um was thrilled when Brian first contacted me about the possibility, and there's no way I'd say no. I'd make it come here one way or the other. And um, uh, so excited to reconnect with Stuart again, long-time friend, uh, friends with him and Zandra, and he's such a, an encouragement to me through the years. So thank you for being here. If you look in your conference guide, your actual little notebook, you'll look on page thirteen and you'll see that the page is blank. I take a little different approach to all this than Stuart does. I wait till I get to the place to get a word of knowledge from the from the Lord and I sort of measure my feelings and my impressions of of what I think I really want to say, and I'm still sort of waiting on something here from the lord <clears throat> but um no, I just uh I, I, I knew there was something I was supposed to send. And I forgot to do it, so you have it now in a handout. Now, let me give you a little disclaimer on the handout. I'm going to be following a, a, a PowerPoint presentation, and what you have, you'll see, you'll see, uh, you'll sort of see these in this PowerPoint, you know, uh, deal that I'm using. So, don't try to write down everything that I'm going to be showing you. You've got the meat of it right here. And eventually, you'll see how it kind of kind of coordinates with what I'm doing. But I want to drill down now on something very specific about, especially related to counseling, when we're ministering to somebody and really when we're dealing with something in our own life, what we're really struggling with is not the the... the the uh, decretive will of God. We As you've already learned, we find God's sovereign decretive will, we find out what it is as it unfolds in, in God's providence. But uh, we're not uh, helping people in counseling find God's decretive will. We're helping them live out God's moral will, God's preceptive will, his revealed will. So that's one way to, to Define what counseling is. That's what we're helping people with. God's moral will. What does God demand of them and in their own lives? That's what we're dealing with. How do we how do we obey the commands of Scripture? What what are we dealing with when we're when we're sinning? What's gone wrong there in our hearts, and how can we correct that so that we can please the Lord and glorify Him? So that's what I'm drilling down on. Is the, just one little way of looking at God's moral will. I want to start with a understanding of some verses in James chapter 4. There's some very strong terms in this. He asks the question, what are, what's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? I certainly have to deal with that sometimes in pastoral ministry, a couple who's having quarrels and conflicts, and sometimes they might even say that. They come in and sit down and we're having all these conflicts, they'll say, but we're not. we don't know why. And I'm thinking, oh, I know why. James chapter four. <laughs> What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war uh, in your in your members? And there's some very strong terms here. I mean, uh, your pleasures—that's a strong ter- term—and it's it, 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 there's a war going on. You, you, you lust. Another strong term, epithumeo. It's not just a desire, but it's got this prefix on it. It's a ruling. Desire You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. Not that everybody does that, but uh, some might. Of course, Christ did say, you know, if we're angry in our heart towards some, we're guilty of murder. But he's just making the point here that more times than not, we're, we're envious. This strong term, we, we crave something. And, and, and we're not getting what we want. That's another way to say what's what's going on in a marriage or somebody's life. We want what we want, we're not getting our way. You know, that's the problem. And so we fight and we quarrel. We should be praying about these problems and, and we, we don't, or if we do, it's more what's in the next verse. God still sees what's in the heart. And He just sees that we want our way and... So I wanna, wanna talk more about that then. I wanna talk about what is the difference, first of all, between desire and what the Bible does call a a lust. So you have this in your notes for sure, this table. You can have desire for so many things that are not forbidden in Scripture. There's certainly nothing wrong with these desires. It's just a short list, and you could put other things. You may have something else there in your table, I don't know, but you could add other things to the list that the Bible doesn't Forbid? I mean, if somebody comes to me and says, Pastor, I, I, what I really want, I just, I just want our marriage to be happy. I'm not going to say, get thee behind me, Satan. Where did you get that idea? That's horrible. Of course, we, I want that. Want a promotion at work? There's maybe a promotion coming up that's going to mean better hours and better pay. Nothing wrong with having desire for that. You can desire material things. Nothing wrong with that. You're single, have a desire to get married. Again, none of these are sins. I mean, there are certain things you can desire that are sin. The Bible would tell us that. And if you tell your wife that, listen, after this conference is over, listen, we need some money, so I want you to help me uh, rob this ATM on the way home. I think we can counsel you to say that's wrong. That's a wrong desire. Okay, get rid of that. But so many things are not wrong, not inherently wrong with these things. The problem is what happens in the heart. The heart used as a summary sort of idea in Scripture uh, that includes the mind, our thinking. It includes our affections. It includes our will. The, the whole substance of the inner man as a summary is called the heart. The heart sometimes is used to talk about more of the complexities of that, the faculties of that, the, the mind. The the affections, the will, but altogether, it's just the inner man. It's who we are. We are because of what's going on in our heart. So something happens on your little graph. You, you could draw an arrow from the left side of that chart to the right side that, that these desires can morph into something. They, they, they become what the Bible calls a lust, an epithumia, a, a controlling desire, a, a ruling Desire this is where it goes wrong, and so i 've given you a definition, one way of looking at what a lust is how do you how, how do you define it it's i 'm not happy or I'm not content if I don't get it okay now you can think back to some of those things that were desires that are allowed you know promotion at work again, nothing wrong with desiring that but I'm not happy if I don't get it and or I'm willing to disobey God to get what I want. Sometimes we hear the word lust. We think automatically of just one category of of sin, you know, sexual sin. But where I read that from James a moment ago, there was nothing in that context about sexual sin. It's a much broader idea than just sexual sin. That's just one example. I'm willing to disobey God in order to get what I want, you see. It could be anything at all. It, it, it's, in fact, in James chapter one, you really have these statements that connect all sin to lust. We're not tempted when we're, you know, by God. He tests us. He doesn't tempt us. The temptation is with a view in mind of failure. A testing is with from God with a view in mind of, of growing you and bringing forth your faith. We're tested when we're drawn away, enticed by our own lust. Our fallen humanist, the flesh. Lust gives birth to sin. So again, nothing in the context of James 1 there directly connected to sexual sin. That's just one example of many. All sin somehow connects this idea of lust. All of it. Well, I think this should then beg a question. If what's in my heart... Could be a desire to or a lust. How do I know which one it is? I mean, what's the test? Is this an allowed desire that I have to go do this thing, to have this thing, to buy this thing, or is it a, a lust? Well, certainly, this is one way to know. It, it, it could be the most defining sort of way to find out what's in your heart. It's it's how you respond when you don't get it. Okay, there, there's. There's the test. How you respond when you don't get what you want. Take the promotion at work. Maybe it's something you've prayed for, you've asked the Lord for better hours, better pay, and you know that. Wow, next Monday the boss is finally going to announce who gets the promotion, and in fact, you know it, and everybody else knows it. It's between you and another person at work, and. And you really know you're more qualified than that other person and you've got more experience. And the other people are telling you, oh, I know the boss is going to give it to you. You deserve it. Monday comes, have the meeting, the boss announces, and he gives it to the other person. That's real life kind of stuff. How do you respond? Well, is it somewhere on the spectrum of anger? That spectrum means... Blowing up at one end, you know, that's it, cursing, I'm out of here, take this job, I'm leaving, go clean out your desk, slam the door on the way out, I'm not going to work here. Or is it at the other end, just a silence, withdrawn, pity party. You know, you, you, you go about your work, but you only do it half-hearted, and you avoid that person. Or as time goes on, begin to slander the person at the proverbial water fountain discussions, you know, at work. Uh, man, I don't know what the boss was thinking. I mean, Bob just wasn't ready. I mean, what, you see that decision he made? All of that's just making manifest what was in your heart was something more than a desire. It was something you had to have, a lust. On the other hand, if your response is disappointment, I, I think we should allow for something that called human disappointment. You know, we're, we're not robots, we do have, you know, thoughts and feelings and so forth, and we're disappointed. I mean, when the Panthers don't win, I'm disappointed. Struggled with that a lot this last year. Uh, but, you know what, you, you go to that other employee and you, Reach out your hand and you say, Bob, let me congratulate you. Listen, listen, I'm here for you. If you need any help from me, I'm glad to help you. I know you'll do a good job. You go back to your desk or whatever you do and you still work hard to bring glory to the Lord. And you go home at the end of the day and you shut the door and you get down on your knees and you cry. <laughs> Lord, I really needed this and wanted this. And but you know best, Lord. You know what's best for my life. And I trust you, your, your sovereign will. You're wise and good and just and powerful and holy God. And I still pray for a better job situation. I still commit that in your hands. But for you to bring about in your time, your way, if at all, Lord, then I would say if that's your response, you know, normal human disappointment, but still trusting the Lord, then I would say that it was a desire. It was a desire. You, you could still have that desire. So it's a real test when you don't get what you want. Now, you don't have this, but it, it just will flesh this out a little bit more. Let's just look at the two sides again. What happens when you don't get your desire? Well, you have these responses, you know, you're, you're content and, and you, you're saying, you know, what God does is what's best for me. By the way, I should throw this in here. Sometimes we do get our desires, and we need to see how we're responding then as well. That happens. We're we're grateful to the Lord. We give him the glory for it. We're thankful. And we still trust him. If he needs to take it away, that's in his sovereign plan. He's a good God. Then mathematically speaking, if you want to put it in a mathematical formula, your desire for God is greater than the desire for the thing. That's the way it should look. No matter what it is. Hey, I'm a parent. I've got four kids. and Pam and I have been married 43 years. We, we got married when we were six. And so, um, in case you're wondering how old I am. And so I have kids from 26 up to 36. And all along the way and still now, we've had a lot of desires for our kids. Things we pray about. Things we're still praying about. It has to stay in that side of, of, of desires and not lust. Even that can become a lust or I'm not happy, I'm fretting, I'm worried, and all of that because of something's not working out, then that's a test for me to see what's in my heart. Always our desire for God needs to be greater than the desire for the thing, whatever it is. On the other hand, if it's a lust, what happens when we don't get our desire? Then we're not content. We're willing to disobey God in order to get it. But again, sometimes in God's providence, we actually do get what we're lusting for. It comes to pass as well. And we serve it. It controls us. It rules us. That's just mathematically speaking proof that the desire for the thing is greater than our desire for God. So again, we just have to always have our antennas up for this problem that can happen it's a constant battle. I mean, this is daily life. This is where we're living moment by moment, hour by hour. It could be things related to family. It could be things related to ministry, things related to dreams and goals in life and plans and all of that. We have to be very careful about this. So I would say many times in counseling, this is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm trying to help people identify their lust. This is why they're responding the way they're responding. And they got to push that thing back over to the other side of the column, to the desire of, column of desire. Now, I need to throw another word onto the table, though. I mean, a lot of times people don't come in and say, you know, I'm controlled by epithumia, Pastor. Can you help me? I hear another word sometimes, the word expected. Expectations. You can go onto that second diagram now. Uh, you know, Pastor, I... I don't know, I expected my wife to be this way, or the it's the wife saying, I mean, I don't know, when we were dating, he was really nice, and now two years in the marriage, I mean, I sort of expected it to turn out this way and that way, or I expected that when we had children that I'd be totally fulfilled and there'd be no more problems in my life. I really, I don't know, I went to this church and I expected it to be a certain way, and after I was there about six months, I don't know, began to see a different side. I expect to just fill in the blanks. I don't always hear the word. I do hear it sometimes. I don't always hear it, but the idea is there. They're dealing with expectations. Now, expectations is just a dictionary word. I'm not saying never use the word. I'm just saying I'm talking about a use of it when there's some baggage attached to it. And when that's true, it's just a cultural substitution for the word lust. I mean, if you told somebody, I don't know, the conference ends at such and such time, I expect to be home by such and such, it's just a word, okay? I'm talking about when it has baggage. And when it has baggage, it's a, it's a substitution for the word lust. And I heard this on a radio program many years ago, that it's a definition of, a, of an expectation. It's a premeditated disappointment. That's what expectations are. You set yourself up for failure, By allowing these expectations to take control of your heart. So let's talk about that for a moment then. We have expectations. And again, if they're desires, that's one thing. But when they morph into this thing called lust, here's the dynamic, here's the problem. We are comparing those expectations to something else called reality. Here's the way we thought our marriage would be, here's the way it really is. Here's the way we thought our children would turn out. Here's the way they really turned out. Here's the way I thought this church would be, and here's the way it's really turned out to be. Here's what I thought this conference speaker was going to be like, and here's the way he really is. You know. And the problem is we get the eyes of our heart focused on our expectations. Do you see that? Isn't that cool? Let me do it again. I gave this lecture many years ago at the Shepherds Conference, and a seminary student took it and made this slide presentation that I'm using. It's really cheesy, but I like that. It's an eye. I'm going to do it one more time just because I like watching it. (laughs) Anyway, we get the eyes of our heart focused on our expectations, and we compare it to reality. And sometimes there can be a great gulf fixed especially on the more weightier issues of life, like marriage and like family and like career and like children and like plans and dreams and ministry. And when our focus is on our expectations and when we're comparing them to reality and they're not matching, these are the kinds of things that can occur as the fruit the the symptoms, the the fruit of unmet expectations. That's what those are. And by the way, you know this if you through counseling training that's done here. The, these are never the real issues. You see, it's not like we throw Bible verses at you know at these things. Oh, you're depressed? Well, here, memorize Philippians, you know, four or whatever. Now, what other problems you got? Yeah. Memorize it three times a day for a week. And give me a call, like a prescription. There's always. Something else going on. These are the red lights of the dashboard. I've heard it described that way. You know, the old-fashioned cars, you know, they have red lights on it. The idiot lights, we used to call them. I mean, when you're driving down the road and your red light comes on, you you know, you don't take it to the mechanic and say, man, my red light's broken. It keeps coming on. Could you fix this red light for me? The mechanic, if he's a good mechanic, he's not going to, well, here, let me look at it. Start the car up. Oh, my goodness, I see. Yeah, that red light is on looks under the dashboard, finds a wire going to it. Oh, here's your problem right here. Clip, cut that red wire, the light goes off. Oh, thank you for fixing that red light. It was driving me crazy. Now, he knows that that's an indication that something else is going wrong. That's what these are. Maybe there's some other words you could put on there, but we get so frustrated, irritated. Controlling sort of discouragement. Yeah, just symptoms. Just the red light letting you know what's going on. The real problem here is these are not desires. They're You're being controlled by a lust of some sort. Just like James said it, what's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Your lust. So, There's a summary of it. We get our eyes focused on our expectations. We compare our expectations to where it really is. The wider the gap, the more pronounced the associated symptoms. Now, again, I already said, depends on the issue. If you go to the restaurant and you order your steak medium and they bring it medium well, I'm not going to say you're going to spiral down into depression, you know, or get angry. I mean, some people, I think, it does. They stand up, get angry, and throw the steak against the wall and walk out or something, you know, I'll never eat here again. I mean, most of the time you you eat it and you don't say anything, you know. Or if they can cook it a little more, maybe that would be better. But again, you get on important issues in life and that gap can be so intense. So let's just cut to the chase. What's the answer well, there, there's repentance, and when I say repentance there, it's the broadest sort of including everything that the Bible might say about it, starting with acknowledge. I need to acknowledge that this dynamic has happened in my heart. There's been some desires that have crossed over into that other category called lust slash expectations. What is it? What was I really wanting? What, what was I expecting life to be that I'm not getting right now? I do need to acknowledge it. And the Bible says to confess it. And that term, you know, is hamalegeo, to, for confess, to say the same thing, say the same. The same as what? God. <laughs> Call it what God calls it. Don't do what human beings have done from the beginning of time. Boy, you really see this when uh, the prophet uh, confronted Saul when he was supposed to kill all the Amalekites, you know, and he and not take any of the sheep or the spoils, and he took some of it, you know, and then he gets confronted, and and if you follow that story, uh you'll see him do these three things. It's what people do. Uh, blame shift. That's what people do. Shift the blame on something. Somebody else. Rationalize. You know, try to figure out and explain, well, there's reasons I did this. And minimize. So blame shift, rationalize, minimize. That's... That's what people have been doing ever since the garden in the fall. We've perfected it today, you know, different ways we can blame shift and rationalize and minimize. That's not the same thing as confessing that. And that's always a problem in counseling. You know, people don't change until you really kind of have hit bottom. You know, you you got to be at the end there to really, you're experiencing real sorrow. And as Stuart said earlier, I mean, these are these things that, it's a supernatural act of God, work of God. God has to do this. I, I can't generate this in somebody's heart. You, you don't manipulate people into godly sorrow. It just guilt trips and things like that. But we certainly pray for this. But when there's true sorrow, godly sorrow, there is this acknowledgement of what's happening and and confessing it, calling it what it is, and and, and 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 putting off. I have to put off this wrong thinking and. Wrong response and wrong acting out of my life. And then there's the put on side as well that we'll get to in just a moment. But I just wanted to throw all that up there real quick, just to remind you, yeah, this is the this is the, the quick answer to what's the solution to all this. It's really, it's really simple. The solution is just repent. Okay. <laughs> and then but I, I want to press on it some more. Especially what do you confess? And you can think, well. It sounds like what you're saying is, I need to quit calling this a sort of distorted desire. It seems like I really ought to call it what it is. It's a lust, to be honest with God. Yes, that certainly makes it more ugly to call it lust, but it's even uglier. And that's the next diagram. The diagram that looks like a fork in the road, you understand that concept A Y why in the road, a fork in the road? I call this diagram my fork in the road diagram, okay? <laughs> Just in case you're wondering. Fork in the road. Just pressing now a little bit more on what it means to choose to live out God's moral will. This is what he's expecting us to do and demanding of it. God can have all the expectations and make all the demands he wants to because he's God. Psalm 115, verse 3. He sits in heaven and he does what he pleases. That's what it means to be God. And everything he does is right and good. Job 42, verse 2. Job said at the end of his trials, I I know, God, that no man can thwart your will, your decretive will. (laughs) And Daniel, what, Daniel 4, I guess, you know, that no purpose of his will go unfulfilled. I mean, he accomplishes his purposes. That's who God is. And, uh, you know, so we're going to call it what it is before God. We're going to uh, be honest with him. We're going to obey his moral will, what he demands of us, because he is God, and what he's revealed to us in Scripture. And things go wrong, and we don't do that. So let's press on a little bit more. You're going along in life, and it's interesting what Stewart said earlier. He quoted Jay Adams that said that opportunities and things that happen—it's not God speaking to you. It's—it's it's really just bringing you to a fork in the road of some sort, a decision point. So there you are. It could be anything. It could be you're being tempted to sin. There you are. Boom. Moment of decision. It could be you're sinned against. Boom, there you are. Could be a general trial in life, you know, you're, you're getting a cold and sore throat and boom, there you are. Or you've been to the doctor's office and, and, uh, there's a voicemail left, you know, in the next day and says, uh, hey, we've got those lab results and, you know, Dr., Dr. Smith would like you to come back in. He'd like to speak to you. And you're going, oh no. Boom, there you are. Uh, somebody says something that's frustrating to you. Irritating. Doesn't matter what it is. Here's what's happening. It's an opportunity where you're facing two possible choices. You can either choose to think and respond and act what we'll just call God's way, or my way, and by my I don't mean Kerry Hardy, I mean you too, okay, us, we, our way. And what is my way based upon? Those things there. My, it's based upon my feelings, you know, my rights. By the way, that's such a dangerous word for Christians. And it It's just a dictionary word and we can use it in legal ways. I have some property rights where I live and there's a property line on my property versus my neighbors and that was real helpful recently because there was a tree that fell and we weren't sure which side it was on who needs to pay for this thing and and uh, we had the lines drawn again and it was on my neighbor's side you know it was good and uh <clears throat> but i'm talking about the way the world pushes this idea on us you know that we have rights stand up for your rights We got rights in this marriage rights as a husband rights of a wife my expectations and desires which really have morphed into lust my plans, you can write a couple of words on there, my goals, my dreams. Any common denominator in that list there that you might notice? My, oh, my. The whole the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. And I'm telling you, when you're at that moment of decision, my way calls out loudly, come this way. Let's just take something hypothetical. I've used this before, illustration. Let's just take something in marriage. I mean, there's more counseling than just marital counseling, but I think about 90% of it is marital counseling. And within that, you have all these other issues like anger and everything else. But it could be anybody, but let's just say marriage. Let's just say a husband and wife have had a conversation on the phone that day. Let's just say this is a situation where she's at home there doing stuff, and the kids, and he's at work, and so... She asks him, you know, what time are you are going to be home? And he says, I'll be home by 7. Okay, well, good, I'll have dinner ready by 7. He comes home at six fifty-nine and a half, and a half, briefcase in hand, walks in the kitchen. And there she is, just getting this frozen thing out of the freezer to start working on. Some mystery casserole of some sort. And and he's looking at this thing, and he's going, it's, it's 7 o'clock. You said dinner would be ready. And he's thinking things like, my expectations, what you said, my rights. I'm the king of this castle anyway. <laughs> I have to work all day. You get to stay home with the kids and do nothing, you know. Don't ever say that, by the way. This <laughs> is all hypothetical. And uh, he's irritated and frustrated, starts to increase, and says things critical, condescending, sarcasm, all those wonderful tools that we keep there in our little pouch, you know, to use when we need them. very effective tools. If your goal is to win or to hurt someone, come out on top, make your point, I actually recommend those things. Sarcasm is really good. Criticism, volume also helps. By the way, there's there's a sound we make in these kind of illustrations, these kind of moments, between all those statements. You know, you know what the sound is? <laughs> we do that. He walks in and he goes, What's going on? <laughs> you said dinner. <laughs> We'd be ready. <laughs> Why do we do that? I think it helps. I mean, it makes our point better. You know, it feels good to do that. <laughs> Sometimes we even put a consonant on the front of it, a W. We go, what? What? I mean, that's one response. I mean, I've got plans tonight. It's Monday night. Football's on. I've got things to do. (laughs) Throw that in as many times as possible. So what, what does he need to confess, I guess is what I'm asking. Sarcasm? Criticism? Condescension? Pride? Yes, 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 yes. Being a jerk, yes, from the Greek, "jerkamai," I think is the Greek word for that. (laughs) Learned that in seminary. Yes, yes, and yes, but see, it's worse than all that, because there was another way to respond, the way all the husbands in this room would obviously respond. (laughs) I'm talking about people from other churches out there somewhere, but uh, (laughs) that Responding with patience. Uh, listen, can I can I help you? I mean, can I keep the kids out of your way? I mean, while you finish, can I set the table for you? Can we go out to eat? Because I know you've had a hard day. You've had a busy day. Patience, kindness, graciousness, understanding. See, that's also a way. And both those ways are, th- are there as possibilities. It could be something else. You get the voicemail from the doctor's office. There's two ways to respond. My way, fretting, worrying. My imagination, making it even worse and worse and worse. Isn't it interesting how our imag- imaginations work? We, we never imagine the best case scenario. We imagine the worst. The worst thing could happen. I've got six months to live. That's what he's going to tell me. Uh, you know, just silent, I mean just worrying. That's a way. And I think we, we like to do that. We like to worry. We like to be anxious. I think we feel like we're doing something when we're worrying. It's like there's some sort of energy that's going out of the universe from our worrying. It's fixing something. But there is another way. Trusting God. God's a good God. His of will is perfect. Everything that comes to me is through the hand of a good, loving, and just God. He's both powerful and loving. Good and just. Holy and Gracious. You know, whatever his will is, is what's best for me. I'm not saying this is always easy, you know. I'm saying that is a way to trust the Lord. We can go that way. So, my, my point with all this is, what do we need to confess when we see it this way? There is... This choice of responding the way God wants me to respond that's biblical in his moral will, those principles that are there that either could direct commands like you've heard or, or the that apply directly or the principles that apply implicitly, they're there. And, and it's timeless. They don't change. It's not for some cultures and not other cultures or some time periods and not other time periods. It's just absolutely timeless and perfect always. God's moral will just doesn't change. Or to go this other way, my way. What I've made is a decision in that moment that's more than just the problem of impatience and anger and frustration. I've elevated something above God at that moment. I've said that me, my way is better than God's way. And whatever we put to be above God, that is what we worship. And so really what the essence is is idolatry. We create these idols in our heart, even out of good things. I'm sure you've heard the quote before by John Calvin that John Calvin not, not Calvin and Hoff. John Calvin's, the one that said it, that the human heart is a factory of idols. We can even make an idol out of having a happy marriage. You can make an idol out of having your husband love you the way Christ loves the church. Isn't that a a strange way to look at that? I mean, God demands that of him. Scripture demands it of him. You can desire that, but it can cross over in your heart and you become an idol. I have a desire... That my children obey me, they should obey, God tells them to. That can cross over into becoming an idol where I have to have it or I cannot be happy and content. We have to be so on guard every day, all day about these kind of things. That's why Paul, you know, wrote Thessalonians about this need, you know, about idols, the problem with idols, how they turn from idols to to, to, you know, following the living God and I think it's John that warns us, you know, as well to be on guard against idols and so idols are more than just some sort of little statues of Buddha or something, you know, it's, it's the things that we set up to be more important to us than God in His way and His will. So that's another way to describe what counseling is. We're helping people identify their idols. And so you have to search your own heart like the psalmist prays and search me, O Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me. Because we don't always recognize this. We get so blind to it. Our, our flesh stays with us, you know. That's our fallen humanness. When we come to Christ, there's something that changes. We have a new orientation toward Christ now. We're not, we're no longer oriented toward Adam. We have a new position in Christ. We're no longer in Adam. We, have new resources available to us and new powers and new goals and and, and and all that. And But there is something that doesn't change until we're glorified, and that's our unredeemed humanness, the Bible calls the flesh. And it's, it only knows one thing to do, and that's to be fleshly. So you give it opportunity, you make provision for it, and, and it will be fleshly. That's why even a, a a mature, godly Christian can be shocked all of a sudden at what they might think or do or say. We have to be on guard about this. And so it's just another way to say then what's coming out of our flesh that's natural for fleshliness, even though we're not in Adam anymore, we're not positionally there, we have new loves for Christ and new position and so forth. This this fallen humanness stays with us. And it it can stick up its ugly head at any given time. Glorification is going to be wonderful because when we're in Adam, our fallen humanness and our orientation toward Adam are all in agreement together. There's no real battle going on. Lost people will do good things. I'm not saying they don't. They can be good mothers and fathers, but it's not out of really holy convictions and love for God. It's for practical reasons or whatever, and they're made in the image of God still. But, boy, when we come to Christ and now we have a new orientation toward Christ... A new position in him, new resources, the flesh is still there, and so now there is a battle, (laughs) a battle until we die. And glorification is going to be wonderful because when we're glorified, now there's no more battle. All aspects of our being are now in in conformity to our our position and our orientation, and it's, it's going to be wonderful. It's hard to imagine. So we have to be on guard against idols all the time. So in one sense, we've turned from idolatry, you know, from worshiping self to turning to to worshiping Christ. And on the other hand, there is this unredeemed humanist that stays with us and it only knows one thing to do, to be fleshly in moments of time. And in moments of time, I can look like an unbeliever. If I'm sarcastic to my wife, my sarcasm is not more holy than my pagan neighbor's sarcasm to his wife. It doesn't sound any different if you just were listening in but wow now there's these new resources and there's the spirit of god bringing conviction through the word of god and for me sometimes it happens in counseling my wife likes me to do counseling because it keeps making me a better husband you know because you've heard of left brain and right brain i say there's a front brain and back brain you know you're counseling with your front brain you know confronting this husband for his sarcasm and his lack of graciousness toward his wife and with my back brain i'm thinking I'm gonna have to make something right when I get home tonight, you know, what I said this morning. So it's sanctifying, but this is, this is what's going on then in sanctification as we become more like Christ. It's it's God dealing with us at this level of the heart where our thinking has gone wrong and our, out of that our actions then go wrong. Problem is idolatry. So back to that graph that you didn't have where I said the desire for God is greater than the desire for something. And the other side was there, too. It's flipped, flipped around. The desire for something is greater than the desire for God. Mathematically, there's the problem. I've set this up. Me is greater than God in a moment of time. We might as well just be honest about it. Let's call it what it really is. Just so you'll know, years ago when I developed this profound fork in the road diagram, <laughs> so simple, I'll tell you what I did. I did it for me. I wanted to understand better when I fail what's going on. In moments of time, I can look like an unbeliever. In moments of time, I can act fleshly. I'm not in the flesh. I'm in Christ. I'm in the Spirit, but I can act that way. I put on blinders to who I am, and I put on earplugs in my ear, you know, so I don't hear the Word of God speaking to me. The appeal of the flesh to go my way is so strong. I don't care what sin it is. I'll tell you one reason it's strong. That my way thing, you know, going down, I said it's so strong because there is pleasure in sin for a season. I don't care what sin it is. Sexual sin, obviously. Let's take the sin of gossip. Come to church and, down in the lobby and you see a couple of your friends over there. So you go over there and you find out that they're, they're talking about, not a bad way, they're just referencing this, this other friend that the three of you have. And you walk into that conversation and you know something about that other friend that they don't. Boom, there you are, fork in the road. Do I throw this little tidbit into the conversation or do I not? Which is called gossip. So why do we do it? It feels good to gossip, that's why. There's a reward in it. It puts me above that person I'm talking about and it even puts me ab- above the friends that I'm talking to because I know some they don't. Again, any sin at all. Why, why would a man be sarcastic to his wife? And by the way, wives, I could reverse all these illustrations. Just when I come into a church, I don't do that. I know how to protect myself. <laughs> <I> just, <laughs> I'm just gonna hammer the husbands. But I've been around long enough, uh, there are illustrations for you as well, ladies. For any of us, why, why are we critical? Why are we short? Why are we ungracious? Well, because there's, there's a goal there in that. There's a pleasure. There's a reward in it. It feels good to be condescending, to be sarcasm. I'm up here and my wife's down here. So there's a, There's a pull there, but it's only short-term, and I don't know how to define how long, but I'm just saying it's a short-term pleasure. But we need to think long-term, because here's what happens. If we've gone my way in moments of times. if we're true believers, there's a thing that happens (laughs) where... God, by His Spirit, brings conviction, and we we, we think we, a sermon that we've heard that Sunday or our quiet time, we're reading, whatever, verses that God brings to our mind that we have in our heart, and we, we realize, I was an idolater. And there could be the sense of guilt. By the way, whether you feel the guilt or not, you are guilty. It's just a position you have at that moment. You violated God's moral will. And the conviction that comes with that, the guilty feelings, can be devastating. And I think sometimes we live right there, we just keep confessing only that, and we don't we don't go back upstream and, and try to evaluate how we got there and confess the the kind of idolatry that was going on in our heart that put us down that path. So we need to look down the path, and Satan doesn't like us to look down the path, you know, to the guilt. But look down the path of the other way, too. Going my way is easy because the pull is so strong and there's a reward in it short term. Going God's way is hard. I mean, in that moment, not to say that sarcastic statement, oh, that's hard. I mean, it's like one of the best sarcastic statements I've ever had. And I have the spiritual gift of sarcasm. And so I need to exercise my giftedness and be a good steward over my ability. And if I don't say it right now, I'm going to lose that opportunity. It's amazing how we can rationalize. Going my way seems easy, and going God's way is hard, although Proverbs does say it's the opposite. You know, the way of the transgressor is hard. And Christ says things like, you know, take my yoke, it's light and easy. If we just look ahead, what's waiting for us when we go God's way every time is something that's more valuable than gold. And there's people all around us that are laboring under the pressure of guilt, even if they don't know it. Just read Psalm 32 and how David labored under the guilt until he confessed. Even He had physical problems even. But boy, there's a clear conscience that's worth more than gold. If we would just look ahead, respond the way God wants us to respond, trust God at that moment, it depends on the the sin, the temptation. It could be... The right thing is trusting God. It could be the right thing saying a gracious word instead of a sarcastic word. The right thing is is looking the other way and not at something we shouldn't look at and so forth. And so the answer was repentance. Acknowledge it, confess it, but call it what it really is. That comes when there's true conviction of the heart. Put that off. But the other part of biblical change, and uh, I'm sort of telling you everything I know about biblical counseling all in one session here, but... The other side of it is putting on what is right. We don't really change if we only do that top part. And people labor there sometimes. They confess, and they confess, and confess, and confess, and feel sorrow and all that. And they try to put it off and put it off, but they never go to that next step of putting on something else, develop new habits of thinking and behavior. And so back to that expectations-lust diagram, I can kind of complete that. I didn't do that while ago on purpose. But there was something else I could set my focus on, something else I can... I can replace, you know, focusing on my expectations or focus on something else. This is just one example. It's a pretty broad one, by the way. Instead of focusing on what I'm not having in my life, focus on something like this, what I really deserve. So what do we really deserve? Hell, judgment, misery. None of my desires ever being met. None of my plans ever working out. No employer ever, ever recognizing my giftedness. I don't, I don't deserve my wife following my leadership one time. I don't deserve it. She doesn't deserve me loving her like Christ loves the church. She doesn't deserve it. And when we think that way, what we really deserve, then the fruit, the symptoms of this way of thinking is not all that stuff that was up there earlier, anger, frustration, and and by the way, I'm just leaving out the element of people have physical struggles and tumors and electrolyte imbalances and hormonal things going on, all that kind of stuff that enters in, you know, to sometimes. So I'm not even addressing that right now. But it's the spirit of gratitude. That's what the symptom is. You could write gratitude over there on that part of that chart. That's, that's what's yielded in our hearts. We're just so grateful. Just so grateful that the trial we're going through is only part of this world. When we get to heaven, it won't be it won't be there. I say that sometimes, you know, to people. You know, 10,000 years into heaven, you're not going to care about this. I mean, the reality is one second into heaven, you're not going to care about this. That we're getting all worked up on. I mean, this is where our theology has to make a difference in how we think and live. Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything, really. We have to apply it. And so when we do, we have this attitude of, of gratitude in our hearts, just so grateful. Now, again, I'm not a robot. I certainly desire that my wife would honor me and respect me and follow my leadership more than one time, and she has. But she's not perfect. Now, I'm not perfect. And we have moments of time we fail. People ask, how have you made it 43 years? Well, We've just been trying to apply our theology, you know, every time something happens. And things still happen. We're still learning how to communicate after 43 years. And I keep learning something. Here's one thing I keep learning. She and I are not alike, you know, on some things. We just don't respond differently. We don't think alike on some, I mean, all the big things in life, certainly, we share those convictions. But we're just not alike. And you have to come to recognize that, and you have to come to believe that it's okay. I'm just so grateful that God uses all these opportunities to sanctify me, to sharpen me, to help me grow to be more like Christ, learn what it means to trust him. And so, again, you can put in something else there for the replacement. It needs to match the sin. It's the opposite of whatever you put off. If it's putting off these kind of words, you need to put on these kind of words and Putting off this wrong goal, I want to win, and put on a right goal, and that's huge. And the goal needs to be something like to honor the Lord, to please the Lord. Second Corinthians five nine, Paul says, I, whether I'm dead or alive, I have as my striving ambition, my goal in life, to be pleasing to Him. Second Corinthians five nine. Different ways you could say the goal, and that goal is going to make a difference in what what you do. See, fretting the opposite is trusting and so forth. This is how we change, how we live our lives. So gratitude that my sins are forgiven and I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Gratitude that there's... I'm only here a short time. I mean, really, 90 years, 100 years. It's just a dot on the timeline. Paul says in Colossians 3, set your mind on things above, have an eternal perspective. The last thing I want to tell you, I just want to tell you that you need to always remember this, that we don't face just one fork in the road in life. You don't have this, but we are creatures of habit. What happens is we, we think the wrong thing and then we do it again and we respond my way again and again and again over little things in life and we fret over this little thing and fret over this little thing and fret over this little thing. What do you think we're going to do when we get the voicemail from the doctor that says he'd like to speak to us about our lab results? Well, we trained our heart to be anxious and fret. We trained our heart in sexual lust. We have trained our heart in sarcasm and ungracious speech. And so we've done it over little, little choices all along the way. And so how we really change is we just need to start making one change at a time, you know. And we develop a new patterns of righteousness in our lives. So I want to pray for us that we'll Keep this in mind as we help other people. By the way, these little diagrams, I, I use them in counseling all the time. And uh, Stuart has so many great diagrams that he uses in his books and book on the husband and so forth. And You can use those when you're counseling with people, but memorize them for your own life as well. Of what's really going on, it's a choice between do I want to live for myself or do I want to obey the moral will of God as it's revealed in Scripture... And as a result, grow to be more like Christ, have the joy of the Lord and a clear conscience, and honor God and please him. That's the bottom line. Let's pray together, Father. I thank you for your word that that is like a a searchlight that shines in the very darkest recesses of our mind, our hearts. I thank you that it's like a sword that pierces into the depths and exposes the the motivations that are there, the deepest parts of us. Only your word can do that by the action of your spirit. So thank you for doing that. Because we need that kind of conviction. We need that kind of help in our own lives so we can grow. And we need all of this as we minister to other people to understand it properly so we give them the proper help as well. In Christ's name, amen.